As we go to the Word this morning, you can open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39. The lives of people around us or people in the great stories or even the lives of people in Scripture can serve as inspirations to us in different ways. Uh, Some people's lives serve as an example seemingly at every turn of what not to do. Maybe you've known people like that. Um, Other people's lives serve as an example of, of how it is that broken and sinful lives can be redeemed and used despite themselves. That's the kind of story we looked at last week with Judah. Remember, Judah was guilty of great sin, and yet he was chosen and used by God for great things. And what a comfort that is to us in knowing that despite ourselves, God can still use us and be at work in our lives for redemption. But there's still another kind of life which can serve as an example to us, not as a negative example or necessarily as an example of God's ability to redeem, but simply as a positive example. Don't most of us have people in our lives, maybe people in our childhood or people still today who we look to and we say, I'd kind of like to be like that person. The way they handle themselves, the way they speak, the way they work through conflict, the way, whatever, fill in the blank, the way they deal with suffering. I'm not sure I could live like that, but I'd like to. I'd like to be that, like that kind of person. You know, ultimately, of course, as Christians, our greatest example is Jesus. The only human being ever to live without sin, Jesus is our perfect example. And yet there's many examples, both in our lives and in Scripture, of, of people who exemplify the character of a person of God in such a way that we should look to them and say, I'd kind of like to be like that person. If thrown into that situation, I, Lord, I'd like to deal with that with as much grace as they did. And one of those people, one of these powerful lives is the life of Joseph. And it's his life that we're going to pick up on now in Genesis 39. We we left on kind of a cliffhanger at the end of Genesis 37 with Joseph being sold into slavery and finding himself in Egypt. And now the great question is, well, what's going to happen next? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to see how Joseph deals with the trials and the temptations that are thrown his way. And what we're going to see is that he deals with trials and temptations as a man of God and a man of deep faith. And my prayer is that we would learn to face the trials and temptations that we're faced with in a similar, in a similar way, by looking to God, by remembering God, and by remembering that we are remembered. That's my prayer for us this morning, that we would remember our God in temptation and that we would remember we are remembered in trial. Let's read our passage together and then we'll pray. Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him 
and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you this morning aware of our trials and temptations. Aware that either currently or in the future we will face great trials, difficulties, suffering. And aware too that even this week we will face temptations to sin and to turn away from you. And so we ask, Lord, that by your word you would now empower us to face the trials in our lives, and to face the temptations before us with faith and with courage. You would encourage us now with the example of Joseph, and that you would make us men and women who are strong and bold in the faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We, where we pick up on Joseph's story, he's not having the best day. We, we pick up immediately after he's been betrayed by his brothers, who he learns actually would have been very happy to kill him, except that selling him into slavery was more profitable. So he's been betrayed by his family, his own kin, his own brothers, sold into slavery in a foreign land. 
He was before the favored son of his father, and now he's a slave, trapped in a foreign land among a people who speak a different language. I think we could classify this as a great trial. I think if we found ourselves ourselves in Joseph's shoes, we might, we might be tempted to discouragement. And perhaps Joseph too is tempted to discouragement, but right out of the gate, we see how Joseph is strengthened even in the midst of his trials. Verse, th- verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. This is what we're told immediately after Joseph is is lowered into this place of great trial. As dark as it may have been in that situation, God had gone nowhere. He was right by his side. And this becomes even more clear as time goes on. As Joseph is serving in the household of Potiphar, God blesses him, he blesses his work, and eventually he's raised up to the position of, of, well, he's basically running the house. That, that by the end, we're told Potiphar didn't worry about anything except mealtime, right? Where he should sit to eat the food that Joseph had prepared. He's handling everything. He's the financial advisor. He's the kitchen manager. He's, he's handling the whole thing for Potiphar. And all because we're told, quite explicitly, Potiphar recognized the Lord was with him. That God was with Joseph even, even in this trial. I think this should encourage us in a couple of ways. First of all, we should be reminded that God always remembers his people. God never abandons those who are his. And we can have this assurance that whatever darkness we may face, be it as dark as this that Joseph is facing or darker, our God will never leave us or forsake us. The Apostle Paul says this in no uncertain terms in Romans chapter 8, that for those who know God, for those who love him, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Neither trial, nor sword, nor tribulation, nothing can separate us from him. And this should be a great encouragement to us in the face of trial. When we're tempted to ask, God, where are you? We can know the answer. Even if he feels distant, he is right there. He is right there. And this is one of the great lessons of the Joseph narrative. An understanding of the providence of God. When we talk about the providence of God, we're talking about God's fatherly, kindly, sovereign care for his people. When we speak of the providence of God, we speak of God being sovereign over all the events of our lives. Nothing comes to us apart from his kind, fatherly, sovereign will. And this is certainly something we see illustrated in the story of Joseph. Joseph must certainly have been tempted to ask in this situation, God, where are you? He's going to go even lower. He's, by the end of this chapter, he's, he's not just a slave, he's an imprisoned slave. But by the end of the book, Joseph is forced to recognize as he is one day reunited with his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Joseph is able to recognize that even in the midst of his suffering, God was at work. 
And indeed, as we consider the larger story, that's exactly what God is doing. He's bringing Joseph step by step closer into the orbit of Pharaoh where he is one day going to be lifted up and glorified to serve as the savior of his people. It certainly must not have felt like that as he was walking into Egypt with his hands tied behind his back. But even there, God was at work. In Romans 8, in verse 28, it's probably a familiar passage to you. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We can understand as Christians that if we belong to God, he works all things, that's quite comprehensive, all things, that's all the events of our lives for good according to his purpose. Does that mean we always know what he's doing? How it is he's working each event for good? No. Oftentimes that is a great mystery to us. But it does mean that in every circumstance we can trust God is working this too for good. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 and verse 11 speaks about the comprehensive sovereignty of God. That he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so this, if we understand this truth as active in our lives in the same way that it was active in Joseph's life, this can be very freeing. Notice what Joseph is able to do faced with great trial. What does he do in Potiphar's house? He works hard. He finds himself where God has put him, and he asks the question, all right, what must I do to be faithful? And he does it. We can do the same in our own lives. When faced with great trial, when faced with great difficulty, often the first question we ask is, why God? Which is often a question we do not have the answer to. It's a comfort to know he has the answer. But in fact, the question we should be asking is, what would you have me to do? Trusting God has brought me here for a purpose, knowing what I know, what is the most faithful course of action? What's the next right thing to do? And that's a very freeing, a very freeing approach to life. It means we leave those things which are on God's pay grade on God's pay grade. And we simply resign ourselves and understand, God, I trust you. I trust you are working even this to good. How can I be faithful here? How can I be faithful here? And then to look proactively, God, I trust you're working this for good. Where are you seeking to bless? Where are you seeking to bless me in my own life? Where are you seeking to use me as a blessing in others? And looking for a purpose even in the midst of our suffering. It's a freeing thing to understand that even in the midst of our trial, God has not forgotten us. He remembers us. And indeed, he has a sovereign purpose and plan for our lives. In trial, the Lord remembers Joseph. And in temptation, Joseph remembers the Lord. In temptation, Joseph remembers the Lord. We're told at the end of verse 6 
that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. And we read here how she comes to him and says, lie with me. But he refused. And he doesn't simply refuse this once. We're told she comes to him repeatedly and again and again and again he resists temptation. Apparently this this happens over an extended period of time, day after day, we're told. We're not sure if this is days or weeks or months, but it's at least an extended period of time. And the amazing thing about Joseph, especially in the context of the book of Genesis, is that Joseph stands firm. Where Adam and Eve gave into temptation, Joseph stands firm. Where his brother Judah gave into temptation with Tamar there on the side of the road, Joseph stands firm. Joseph's not a perfect man, but here he's a faithful man. And so it's worth looking into Joseph's thinking on this point. How is it that Joseph stands firm in the face of temptation? Because we too are faced with temptation day after day. Perhaps in the area of sexual temptation, but also in any number of areas. Where again and again, and sometimes in this kind of oppressive way in which Joseph is tempted, where again and again we're lured either by the world, the flesh, our own sinful desires, or by the devil, to turn aside from the way of God towards sin. And I think Joseph's example here is very instructive in the way he resists sin. I think there's some really practical things he does here that that can be helpful for us in our own battle with sin wherever we may be besieged. I want us to see that the first thing Joseph does as he responds to Potiphar's wife is to remember his great blessings. He says, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me. Joseph looks around and he he sees what God has given, and he sees what his master has given. He's been given everything, except one thing the one thing he's being tempted with right now. And this is exactly Satan's method of temptation. You think about the garden. What were Adam and Eve Eve given in the garden? Everything. Every good food to eat from all the trees in the garden. And there's one tree in the middle of the garden that they're told you may not eat of this because if you eat of it, you'll die. And what does Satan tempt them with? The one thing which has been withheld from them the one thing which would lead to their certain ruin. This is very often true to our own experience in the way that we are tempted to sin. That Satan's desire is to blind us of all the good things we've been given and to narrow our focus with blinders in on the one thing which God has not given us and which would lead to our destruction. When we're tempted to sin, it's this cloudedness comes in and the thing Joseph does is to cut through it and say listen I've been given so much who am I to long for that which God has not given me to long for that which my master has not given me 
one of the first steps in resisting temptation is to be grateful, to cultivate an attitude of thankfulness to God for all his blessings. Well, the second thing that Joseph does is to remember his stake, remember the stakes and to remember the covenant commitments that he's made. He calls to mind the many ways in which his master Potiphar has entrusted him with all these things. My master is no concerned about anything. He's put everything in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Do you see how much he's trusted me with? Do you see how much he's given to me? Joseph calls to mind the covenant commitments which he has made to his master. And he calls to mind the stakes. He says, you know what you're asking me to do? You're asking me to betray everything that I have. Everything that I've been given. This too is one of the tools of the enemy and one of the tendencies of our flesh in the midst of temptation is again for the blinders to go on. To forget the many interconnected relationships and covenants and commitments we've made with our family, with our spouse, with our children, the many commitments we have, and to focus in on, again on the one thing that, that we must not have. And so here too, Joseph cuts right through all of it. He makes very clear, I have commitments. I, have a, I am a man of my word. I am a man of my master. I stand by him. He's entrusted me with much, and I will not betray that trust. And so, too, the second thing we must do to cut through the clouded confusion of temptation is to remember our commitments, to remember the covenants which we have made with our spouse, to remember the commitments we, we have been given by blood to our children, to remember who it is we are, not on our own with our desires, but in the web of a community where we have deep God-given commitments. The third and the final thing that Joseph does is he remembers his God. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph understands that in her asking him to betray his master, he's not just going to be betraying his master, he's going to be betraying his God. Joseph understands the theological nature of sin. Joseph understands that God is with us in all moments. Joseph here is living, as the old divines used to say, coram Deo, before the face of God. He remembers that he is living before the face of God. Again, this is, what, this is what gets increasingly clouded in the midst of temptation as our flesh seeks to lure us aside from the straight path. It's very easy to remove God from our thoughts when we want to sin. Because when our desire is for sin, we know that any awareness of the holiness and presence and power and love of God would serve as a kind of barrier between us and the desire which we have fixated upon. 
And so what is the one thing we must cultivate if our desire is to resist sin? A sense of the presence and the power of God to cultivate daily, hourly, minute by minute, a living, active sense in our own hearts that we are ever in the presence of God. And this can't be a merely reactive thing. If we are to stand in the face of temptation, we must, again, daily, minute by minute, hour by hour, be cultivating this sense. To mark at the beginning of our day a time of scripture reading or prayer, however brief, to commit ourselves to living before the face of God, to acknowledge him for who he is, to praise him, to love him for all that he is, and throughout the day to refresh that understanding so that we may not forget our God, but live every moment before his face and before his presence. And in the moment of temptation, when things are most pointed, then to flee to him, to run to him. What does Joseph do in the culminating temptation? When there's no one in the house and she grabs his garment, he flees, he runs for his life. Get me out of here. And so too we must also do. Flee, flee, flee where? Flee to God, to his word, to prayer. Flee to his presence because it's in his presence that the clouds are dispelled and things become clear and temptation loses its power. What does Joseph do in the midst of temptation? He remembers his God. He remembers his God. And how does that work out for him? Not good in terms of earthly circumstances, right? He was a slave. Now he's an imprisoned slave, right? Potiphar's wife uh, falsely tattles on him, falsely accuses him of the sin that she was committing. She's the original, um, original gaslighter. And, and so now Joseph finds himself in jail. Let me ask a question before we move on to our final point. Aren't we sometimes tempted when we're given the option of faithfulness which we know will hurt us or compromise which we know will be more comfortable to go in the direction of compromise? Wouldn't it have been easier for Joseph just to give in a little bit, just to give her a little bit some of something? And then, of course, he could stay in the household and he'd still be able to be faithful to his master. Joseph does not give in to that temptation if it's active at all in his heart. Joseph has one master and it's God. Compromise can sometimes promise comfort or safety, but it cannot deliver. Joseph understands ultimate safety is only found in the center of the will of God. As I've quoted Charles Stanley, a couple of times in the last month or so, obey God and leave all the consequences to him. And that's just what Joseph is willing to do. 
He chooses the faithful road. He's a smart guy. I'm sure he knows eventually Potiphar's wife is going to get mad and get rid of him. That's exactly what she does. But there's a kind of safety we can know in the will of God. And when we're faced with that question of compromise or, or potential pain, we can choose pain. We can choose discomfort knowing the only safe place is in the center of the will of God. Well, what happens when he ends up in prison? Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. Again here, Joseph is brought even lower. If you thought he couldn't get lower than a slave betrayed by his brothers, now he's even lower. Now he's even deeper. He's even darker. And there too the Lord is with him. There, too, the Lord stands by him and blesses him. And there's a parallel here, right? He's raised up even in the prison to become the overseer. And the, the prison warden just spends his days watching Netflix in the office because he doesn't have to worry about anything because Joseph's got it well in hand. There, too, the Lord is with him. And there, too, the Lord has plans for him though he has not yet seen them materialize as he goes deeper and deeper, literally into the dungeons of the most powerful man on earth. He surrendered to the will of God. In the same way, we can have comfort in, in going lower. We will probably all face moments in our lives when... We're already exhausted, we're already tired, we're already besieged, and then we're handed a new circumstance which brings us even lower. And we say, why, Lord? What are you doing in this? I was a slave already, now prison too? Whatever the circumstance may be. But there too we can trust. First of all, the Lord is with us. Second of all, the Lord has plans for us, for our good, even though we may not see them in that moment. And that is the, that's the courage Joseph faces this with, and that's the same kind of courage that Jesus faced the cross with. As the Father called him lower, after lowering himself to the point of being a, taking on human form, the Creator taking on the form of a creature, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's called even lower, called to lay down his very life for his enemies, called to suffer as the divine Son of God, the very wrath of God in our place. Jesus called to the suffering and the indignation of the cross. And why is it that he was willing to bear even that? What propelled Jesus forward as he went lower, lower than anyone has ever gone in suffering and trial? It's for the joy that was set before him, Scripture tells us, right? For the joy that was set before him, he he, he bore the shame. For the joy that was set before him, he bore the cross. Not for the joy of the cross. That was not a joyful thing for Jesus. But understanding the joy that was to come. The joy that would come on the far side of the cross. Knowing that it was only through the cross that then resurrection could come. Knowing that it's only through the, that cross, only through suffering, that then joy and resurrection and new life could come on the far side. 
Jesus has called us to to pick up our crosses, hasn't he? Even as he's given himself totally for us, he now asks us to give ourselves totally to him. What did he say during his ministry? He said, if anyone would follow me, he must pick up his, his cross, die to himself, and follow me. This is the call to follow Jesus, to go down that we might be lifted up. And that is the hope. The story does not end with crucifixion. The story does not end with Joseph in the prison. The story ends with glory, ultimately. And it's the same for us as Christians. And this is the same kind of confidence we can have as we face suffering. I'm going to close with this from 1 Peter chapter 1. You'll probably be familiar with this passage. Peter is praising God. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been born again to hope, he says. What kind of hope? To an inheritance. We've got an inheritance bigger than any rich uncle's ever going to leave you. It's an inheritance from God, we're told, verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Where is it? It's not at Bangor Savings. It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This is the nature of the Christian life. We are longing for a final salvation that has not yet been revealed. We're longing for an eternal inheritance which we have not yet seen. And this is, listen to this, this is what I want us to see. 1 Peter 1.6 In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Isn't that the case? Now, for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials. That's life in this world. And Peter says, despite those, in those, we rejoice, longing, looking forward to that which is to come. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. This is the nature of the life of faith. And we can have hope even in the darkest place that the dark place is not the end. There is glory to come. In temptation, let's remember the Lord. And in trial, let's remember we are remembered by the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus into the world to die for us that we might live. Enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him. We pray too, Lord, that you would teach us to look to the glory that is to come, to rejoice with hearts full of joy even as we endure great suffering trusting you, trusting your promises, trusting your purposes, trusting your sovereign providential plan. 
We pray, Lord, that in every way, even this week, you would equip us to walk by faith in you, remembering we are remembered, and in the midst of temptation, remembering you, walking ever before the face of God. We ask your help in all of this, for we are weak. We pray, Lord, that you would fill and support us with your Holy Spirit and with the power of your word, that we would abide in you daily, that we may walk not in ours but in your strength. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close. We'll sing the doxology. It's on the back of your bulletin. Praise God from whom